Welcome to the New Books Network. Ruth, a princess of Moab, leaves her homeland after suffering terrible losses to become the mother of the royal house of Israel. Now, in a revolutionary reading of this immortal tale, Moshe Miller provides an entirely new perspective on this beloved story. Beneath the simple surface of the story, the sages trace a web of primal issues, including the serpent in the Garden of Eden, the jealousy of Cain, the painful break between Abraham and Lot, and the mystery that is the mitzvah of Yaboom. The fiber that binds together all these issues is love. Love is the key to this story which culminates in the unique love of Ruth and Boaz and the ancestors of the once and patriot king David, whose very name means love. Join us as we speak with Moshe Miller about his book, Rising Moon, Unraveling the Book of Ruth. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Moshe Miller is a graduate of Yeshiva Neri Yisrael and holds a master's degree in philosophy from Brown University. He's been an educator for nearly 50 years and immigrated to Israel in 2010. He lives in Jerusalem where he continues to teach and write. Moshe, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Please tell us about yourself and how you came to write on the Book of Ruth. Well, um, if I started at the beginning, we would have no time for any other questions. So I'll just cut to the most relevant <laughs> chapters of my life. Uh, I was um, uh, educated rabbinically at the Near Israel Rabbinical College in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I also took a uh, uh, completed a master's degree in philosophy at Brown University. Uh, when I was uh, a uh, principal of a private uh, uh, Jewish high school there in Providence. Um, My career has been spent uh, as an educator, a Jewish educator, uh, both as an administrator and uh, I would say most importantly as a teacher. I've always taught, even when I was an administrator, and um, I taught for... um, about 45 years at uh, a number of institutions, um, both uh, in the United States and in Israel. And um, most recently was uh, a lecturer at Michlala, uh, Jerusalem College for Women, when my wife and I decided to uh, you know, retire to Israel uh, about uh, 13 years ago. Um, but then I... Uh, uh, stop teaching in order to concentrate completely on writing. Uh, I had already invested about five years in the book that we're discussing, Rising Moon, Unraveling the Book of Ruth, and um, I wanted to finish it. So, And I've been writing ever since. That's uh, a little bit about me. How did I come to Ruth as the book? Well, I, I would cite a, a verse in the Chronicles 1, chapter 29, verse 11, which uh, states, Yours, Lord, are greatness, might, splendor, triumph, and majesty. Yes, all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and preeminence above. Now, this verse is taken by the Talmud as an expression of the seven essential 
characteristics of God. The translations are not so great, but uh, they are greatness, might, splendor, triumph, majesty. In the verse, the culminating one, the final one, is uh, yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and preeminence above. What we call in Hebrew, malchut, kingship. Kingship is the culminating uh, and most integrative of all of the characteristics of God, and therefore, um, in a sense, the most comprehensive and important of them. Uh, this book deals with the creation of Jewish royalty, and Jewish royalty is seen by our sages as a, a reflection of heavenly royalty. And therefore, why not deal with the book that uh, takes as its subject the single most important characteristic of God? There is immense profundity in this book wrapped in a simple love story, and that makes it utterly bewitching. That's why I chose Moshe, would you orient our listeners to the Book of Ruth, including uh, in relation to other books by Samuel, their traditional author? Yeah, as you mentioned, Samuel is, according to the tradition of our Talmudic sages, the author of a trilogy. Uh, first, the Book of Judges, uh, then the eponymous Book of Samuel 1 and 2, and um, in the middle, uh, both uh, chronologically and conceptually, is the book of Ruth. And the, um, the prophet Samuel himself was the transitional figure between judges and kings, uh, because Samuel was the last of the judges, and according to Talmudic tradition, he was actually... Um, uh, in a real sense, the first of kings, meaning he shared kingdom, kingship for one year with the first Jewish king, King Saul. So he is a transitional figure, and there was no one better equipped to write about the transition from judges to kings. Conceptually, what was the meaning of that transition? What is the difference between the era of judges and the era of kings? And um, what is the mechanism, uh, the instrument by which the transition is made? And that question, the, the description and identification of the mechanism and instrument is the purpose of the Book of Ruth. Ruth identifies how it is that we move from judges to kings and um uh that's um that 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 is more or less the uh, uh the relationship between the three books but of course i'm taking for granted that um we all know what the three books are about judges is self-explanatory it's about the period of uh, tribal leaders who occasionally unified 
the nation, the various tribes under their leadership. But it was a time that was characterized by, um, and this is a crucial sentence that appears twice in the book of Judges. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did as they saw fit. Um, this is very crucial, uh, doing as they saw fit. And the fact that the book emphasizes that there was no king, uh, crucial in, in creating a um, frame for the book of Samuel, which then describes the beginning of Jewish royalty. Uh, Samuel was the person who anointed both Saul and David, and the book of Samuel 1 and 2 describes many of the um, crucial events in both of their lives. And as I said, Ruth, which occurs sometime, and historically, sometime during the period of Judges, according to our tradition, Boaz, the uh, hero, if you will, of the book of Ruth, um, its main male figure, uh, uh, is identified with one of the judges by the name of Infsan. And um, so that book, which chronologically comes in between the other two, as I said, describes the mechanism of the uh, of the transition. So what you have over here in, in, uh, in summary is you have um, the author of the book of Judges, Samuel, which closes with the words, in those days there was no king. He's also the man who lends his name to the book that describes the end of Judges and the beginning of Kings. And this is the same man who authored the book of Ruth, which opens with the words, and it happened in the days when the judges judged, and ends with the birth of the king, David. They're thus merging Samuel's other two books. Well, for many, the story of Ruth is a simple love story. You demonstrate that it is about Malkut, kingdom, in a profound sense. Would you explain this? Yeah, of course. Um, we we need to begin with a, um, a principle, uh, which is that the king is not merely a political figure in um, Jewish thought. Uh, the king is a leader whose principal function is to create a mode of interrelationship between the diverse and innumerable elements of the kingdom. In a word, the king integrates. He is supposed to be an integrator. And so he interrelates. And therefore, kingship in Jewish thought can only be built of the most um, intimate and intricate bonds, which, of course, immediately brings to mind love, because that is what love is. It's an intimate uh, bond. It is a profound, the most profound uh, interrelationship. So, what 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 I think, you know, we need to we what we need to think about is rethinking the common assumptions about kingship, about royalty. When we hear the word king immediately, or queen for that matter, immediately a certain kind of figure, uh, human figure comes to mind um, 
who uh, is uh, bedecked with uh, jewels and crowns and royal robes, etc., and uh, has a great deal of authority invested in their person. They are resplendent. But the truth of the matter is that kingship can be better represented by something like uh, a beehive or an ant colony, because what you have there is a, a complex system that expresses far more than the sum of its parts. And that is what malchut, or royalty, is in, uh, in Jewish thought. Um, in a, in a uh, bee, bees and ants, I mean, they, they don't reproduce. They can't uh, survive on their own. They only survive as part of an integrated system. Uh, when you put all the units together, you take all these single bees or single ants and you put them together, then they begin differentiating, and each individual performs a specific task according to the needs of the integrated system. Um, so, malchut or kingship is the name we give to describe a system in which components work synergistically to produce a whole that is greater than its components. We think of the universe um, as being composed or being constituted of individual objects, like discrete things. But we have learned in the 20th, now into the 21st century, that such a universe does not in fact exist. Uh, there are no discrete things. There are no discrete articles. The universe is nothing but the interrelationship of various forces that give birth to complexity. And we're subject to these forces all the time, and we use them in our common discourse to describe our experiences. We can speak of another person as being attracted or about the electricity of their awe touch or the magnetism of their personality or the gravitas of their presence. And all these things are metaphors that we use, that we take from the real world of interrelationships, of forces that um, produce things by interrelating. The greatest example of this is the human mind. Our sages in the Talmud describe the mind or the brain as the king of the organs. And it's a very telling choice of words because that's what the mind is. Uh, it is a, um, a, a, it's the most complex organiz, organized structure and in, in the universe. It's made up of, I don't know, a hundred billion neurons, um, and each neuron makes thousands of contacts with other no neurons, and those points of contact called synapses, that's where exchange of information takes place. And the, the amazing thing is, is that a neuron doesn't think. A neuron is more or less an on-off switch, but when they interact, 
when they interrelate, they create the most incredible and marvelous things in the entire universe. And the things that we care about most, things like thought and love, emerge. And that's a very key word, very modern word, but a very important word in terms of the entire uh, agenda of the Book of Ruth emergence. These things that are most important to us in life, such as, again, thought and love, emerge from those interrelationships. Lurking in the background of the love story between Boaz and Ruth are the dark episodes of Sodom in Genesis 19 and Gibeah in the book of Judges. Would you rehearse these connections and their role in Ruth? Yeah, sure. Well, let's, let's first um, very briefly summarize the, uh, these two incidents. Uh, the incident of Gibeah in the book of Judges occurs first, and um, basically um, someone is on his way home with his, his uh, concubine um, from the city of Bethlehem. He's going back to the mountains of Ephraim where he lives, that portion of the land of Israel. He decides to spend the night in the town of Gibeah, which is in the tribal portion of Benjamin. He's received coldly. He's not offered any lodging. Eventually, an old man from his tribe, who happens to be staying there as well, living there, offers to take the travelers into his home just as they complete the evening meal. The townsfolk surround the house and demand that the old man send out the Levite so that they might assault him sexually. Um, the old man refuses. He offers his own daughter and the Levite's concubine instead. Eventually thrusts the concubine outside. She is abused all night and uh, staggers back to the old man's house and dies on his uh, threshold. And after the Levite uh, discovers the atrocity, he uh, takes action. He actually cuts up her corpse into 12 pieces, sends them off to the 12 tribes of Israel, demanding a response to the outrage. Now, um, Samuel, again, who's the author of this book, as we stated before, draws attention to this very disturbing story uh, through several literary devices. First, much of the narrative is blatantly plagiarized from the incident of Sodom. We don't have time to make the verse-by-verse -verse comparison, but if you do take a look at Genesis 19 and the narrative of the story of Sodom, it's the same story where the, uh, the angels who had visited Abraham come to Sodom one of their missions is to destroy the cities. Uh, they come, they are taken in as guests by uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, they've come also to save Lot from the destruction of Sodom, save Lot and his family. And uh, the assault on him, uh, the, the assault on Lot, and then eventually um, uh, the threatened assault on his daughters is uh, the the image of the assault in Gibeah. The only difference is that in Gibeah it happened, and in Sodom, Lot and his family were saved by the by the angels who intervened. Uh, the language is the same in several of the verses. 
It's clearly been plagiarized for a purpose. Second, the story is out of place. The story of Gibeah is out of place chronologically. It, it does not appear in its correct historical placement, which would have been at the beginning of the book of Judges, but instead serves as the closing of the book because it creates the transition into the book of Samuel. Um, it, uh, it describes in, in horrible fashion the depths to which um, the Jewish people have descended as a result of the uh, chaos of the years of the judges. And finally, the story of Gibeah is set apart by a linguistic frame. It, the story both opens and closes with the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. So uh, it draws our attention like a laser to the idea that what we need is the transition to kingship from the period of judges, what we can learn from the period of judges and how those lessons can be incorporated into the creation of um, kingship. And of course, um, we also have the, uh, the remarkable fact that the first king, Saul, comes from the incident of Gibeah, because uh, remember the incident occurred in the tribal portion of Benjamin. Saul was descended from Benjamin the Jewish people were determined not to intermarry any longer with Benjamin, but they realized that the tribe would be eliminated as a result of that. And they also understood they had a long-standing tradition from their great-grandfather Jacob that uh, a promise that he received from God that kings would yet emerge from him the only one of his children who was not yet born when that promise was made was Benjamin. So they understood that a king would come. So they uh, figured out a, a way, according to Jewish law, for their commitment not to intermarry with uh, Benjamin to be uh, for, to be absolved of that commitment. And eventually, Saul is the result. So that's amazing when you consider that David results from the Sodom incident because we know that Lot, Lot, Lot escaped with two of his daughters. Uh, he, uh, they, they, got, they inebriated him. They both were impregnated by him. The older of the daughters had a child who she named Moab, and Moab eventually produces Ruth. Will produces David. So we have this, this absolutely um, remarkable uh, connection here um, between these two incidents and their role in the book of Ruth. Such a remarkable book. So it's amazing. 85 verses long, simple story, and it contains just about uh, every profundity that one can imagine in uh the philosophy of the Torah and Judaism. So Moshe, what would you say the main message of Ruth is? Um, I, I mentioned a word earlier in our uh, brief discussion of kingship, of malchut, which, is, uh, which was emergence. In two words, I would say that the main message of Ruth is live 
emergently. Uh, let me unpack that just a little bit. Um, living emergently means not living manipulative, manipulatively, manipulatively. <laughs> okay, that's a tongue twister for me. Um, it means participating in life, not spying on life, uh, not being an observer, but being somebody who throws themselves in to the current of life and allows that current to take them to places where they may not have planned to go. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, statement uh, John Leonard actually uses it in one of his songs, but uh, he was he was not the originator of it. But regardless, the uh, the, the statement is that uh, uh, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Um, we're all so busy all of the time planning out our lives, but as we grow older and more experienced, we realize that. It never, ever works out the way that we expect it. We are constantly confronted by unexpected opportunities and how we respond to those opportunities, which is the most remarkable. It's brought out in the book of Ruth through this most remarkable contrast between Ruth and the Redeemer who does not redeem the man we call Plony Almoni, and he doesn't, he's anonymous, he's Mr. Anonymous. He's given, up his, he's given up his identity in his desperate attempt to save his identity, because that's what he was afraid of. He was afraid that his, his identity, his family would be ruined if he took upon himself the marriage to Ruth, and um, he becomes the absolute uh, uh, archetype of anonymity in the Bible, whereas Ruth, who seizes the opportunity, whatever is presented to her, um, never forces her way. She's always looking for a place where she can interrelate. Even when she's starving, when she and her mother-in-law are starving, she insists on finding a field where there are suitable people, people of grace, as she refers to them, with whom to work, with whom to gather. She won't go just anywhere, even though it means going hungry. Um, Ruth is, um, teaches us that planning is actually bad for you, because all you really need, if I may quote uh, Beatles again, is love. All you need is love, because it's those interrelationships that uh, create all the opportunities that you require in life. I, I just like to, I, I think I, I would close this response with um, a marvelous statement in the Talmud, um, which teaches that uh, God created two worlds, this world and the world to come, with two letters of his name. The small letter that we call Yud created was used to create the world to come. But then there's a letter that we call Hey, which uh, was used to create this world. And the Hey is formed, the way it's written, is you've got two lines that are perpendicular to each other. They form a right angle, top and the right side of the letter. 
And on the left side of the letter, there's a small line that doesn't reach the top. There's a, an open space between it and the top, and there's an open floor at the bottom. And this letter symbolizes what this world is all about. We, it's easy to fall out. It's easy to fall out the bottom. The bottom is wide open. You can make, we all make mistakes, and we fall out. But we can always find our way back in. But the remarkable thing is that you cannot find your way back in the same way you fell out. You've got to find your way back in through that small window between the line on the left and the top line. You have to find the new opportunities, the new ways of relating to life, of looking at life, of interacting with life in order to discover what can emerge from your life rather than what you can uh, create based on preconceived notions, things that you've already decided, standards that you've already established. You have to be a responsive person and therefore live emergently. And that's, I think, the main lesson of the Book of Rooks. Are you working on any other projects or books that you can tell us about? Sure, my pleasure. Uh, I I just sent uh, my second book to the publisher, to uh, uh, Kodesh Press, who will uh, sometime, I hope, within the next year, uh, put out this book. It's called um, Lost in Transmission, Rediscovering Authentic Torah Teachings. Uh I discovered over the better part of a lifetime teaching Torah that there are many uh, fundamental concepts that are either misunderstood or not understood at all. And I've tried to identify many of those concepts and present them in what I believe is an authentic fashion. And uh, obviously, I think there's a great deal to learn from those ideas. Uh, so that's a, a book, you know, of essays, each one t devoted to a, another one of these uh, topics. And um, yeah, I've sent that off to the publisher, so I've started working on the next, the third book. Uh -huh. I hope the good Lord will provide me with the strength and good health to complete. Would you be able to tell us what this third book is about? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I, I'm going to say that uh, it is probably going to be a, a collection of essays on uh, all of the Jewish holidays, major and minor, uh, from the beginning of the year at Passover to the end of the year at Purim, with everything in between, again, including the minor holidays. Um, that is probably going to be the uh, the topic. I'm, I'm still at the stage of working on the topic, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be it. Moshe, what a fascinating time this has been talking with you about the Book of Ruth. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.